Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire-charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your guide to the whitetail woods. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light. Go farther, stay longer. And now, your host... Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wire to Hunt podcast. This week on the show, we are chatting with the one and only Don Higgins about the habits, personality traits, and behaviors of the biggest, oldest bucks he's ever hunted. All right, welcome to the Wire to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And First Light's Camel for Conservation Initiative, in which a portion of every sale of their Spectre Camel Pattern, which is their Whitetail Camel Pattern, a portion of every one of those sales is going back to the National Deer Association to help them on their mission to make things better for deer and deer hunters, which is pretty darn cool, in my opinion. And I think today's podcast is going to be pretty darn cool, too, folks. We've got Don Higgins on the show. I'm guessing you know Don. He's been on the show a handful of different times over the years, including uh, famously a few years back, he came on this show and called his shot. He said, hey, this coming season, I'm going to kill a 200-inch buck from this specific blind, and here's how I'm going to do it. And you know what he did? He went ahead and did exactly that. So today, he is a perfect guest for our series that we're in the midst of, which is all about big old bucks. It is about those oldest of old deer getting a behind-the-scenes look into the minds of how these mature, mature deer act, what they do, why they do it, how they do it, and what all that means for us as deer hunters. And I think there's a few other people in the world that have probably had as much experience with really old bucks as Don Higgins. Don has been a very long-time outdoor writer. He's written about deer and deer hunting for years and years and years across a bunch of the different popular publications. Um, these days, you can find his work pretty frequently in North American Whitetail. Uh, he has now developed a whole series of different 
content offerings of his own. He's got the Chasing Giants podcast. He has the Whitetail Master Academy online video course. Uh, He's got a website over there on HigginsOutdoors.com. He's got all sorts of stuff that is all framed around sharing his experiences, hunting and studying and managing and improving habitat for big old whitetail deer. And that's the game plan today is to kind of get into all of the interesting lessons he's learned from those biggest, oldest bucks that he's hunted over the years. What kind of habits have they had? What were their behaviors? What were their tendencies? What kind of little personality traits has he noticed? And, you know, how can we take advantage of all that? So that's what we're talking about today. Now, as I have mentioned on our previous podcast in this series, I want to make it abundantly clear that although today we are talking about big old deer and we are celebrating how cool they are and how much fun they are to try to understand and to chase and to hunt, and there's nothing wrong with that, there's also nothing wrong with having different goals. There's nothing wrong with wanting to kill the first deer you see or shoot a young buck or shoot a bunch of two or three-year-olds. Whatever it is that lights your fire, whatever it is that makes this fun for you, do that. Do not feel any pressure to, you know, chase the same goals that somebody else does. Do not feel any pressure to, you know, kill a big deer because everybody else seems to be doing it. Do your thing. Hunt your own hunt. And most important, do what is fun. Make sure it's legal. Make sure it's ethical. Make sure it's fun. And I'll give you an example. I'm actually leaving tonight to go on a hunting trip. And I'm going to be hunting deer in Wisconsin on a brand new property I've never touched foot on before. I don't know what I'm doing out there. And I'm just going to be focusing on having fun. I'm not going to try to kill some big giant buck. I'm not trying to kill a five-year-old. Uh, hey, if I see a deer like that and I, I get a chance, awesome. But I am just going to be going out there to have fun. I want to kill a doe or two to help out the landowner. And otherwise, I'm just going to see what gets me excited. If there's a nice two or three-year-old buck that comes by and the hunt has been going in such a way that this is an opportunity that I, I can't pass up on, then heck yeah, I'm going to shoot that deer. I'm going to be happy. Or maybe I'm going to see a bunch of deer like that, and I'm going to say, nope, that's not what I want to shoot right now, just given where I'm at, what's going on, how I'm feeling. Maybe I just want to pass. Maybe I just want to watch those deer. I'm going to see how the week goes. I'm going to see how the days go, and and we're just going to feel it out. And when it comes right down to it, I just want this to be an enjoyable experience, getting the deer hunting season kicked off, spending some time with some good friends, and enjoying ourselves and the outdoors and our company being out there chasing these critters, learning stuff, and maybe put a little venison in the freezer along the way. So I just want to make sure that's really clear. Even though we're focusing on these big old bucks, there's a lot bigger things here in the larger scheme of things. So with that all said, if you do like big old bucks, though, this is going to be the podcast for you. Don has got a lot to share We're going to get right to that podcast here after a couple very quick updates. Update number one, make sure you're following One Week in November over on YouTube. That's our new series on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. I believe episode four came out this week, so you are getting to now see day one, two, three, and four of our seven-day rut hunt that we had last year, and it's following my hunt in Nebraska and Ohio. And then the hunts of my buddies, Tony Peterson, Spencer Newharth, Clay Newcomb, and Giannis Putellis. And I feel like day four was like this kind of day of, not debauchery, but but debacles, I guess is maybe the right word. Um, so if, if I remember this day right, we just had to kind of laugh at ourselves. And so be sure to check that one out and all the rest that are come over these next couple weeks. Um, another update. 
If you haven't yet, make sure you are tuning into Rut Fresh Radio, which comes out every Wednesday, in which we are checking in with four or five deer hunters from across different parts of the country to find out what's happening right now. How's the deer activity been? How are current conditions impacting deer movement? What kinds of tactics they're working right now? You know, what are the deer doing? What are they feeding on? How are they relating to this weather or whatever it might be? You can learn a lot of really fresh, hot intel that can help you on your upcoming hunts. So make sure you're tuning into that. And then finally, I think this is going to come out just before I head to Missouri, not Missouri, Mississippi for our fifth Working for Wildlife Tour event. So I just want to uh, send out a big thank you to everyone who signed up for that. I can't wait to see you guys on the 23rd in Mississippi. We're going to be volunteering down there to plant fruit trees, plant food plots, remove invasive species, and do a handful of other good things on public land down there to make it better for wildlife, to make it better for hunters, and all sorts of critters out there. So it's going to be a good time. It's going to be good work. I'm pumped about it. Thank you for being a part of it down there, all my southern folks, whether it's Alabama, Mississippi, wherever you're coming from, let's get to work. And now, with that out of the way, we've got to get to something else, which is this really interesting podcast with Mr. Don Higgins. And I mentioned at the top, he predicted a few years ago, he predicted that he would kill a 200 buck from a specific stand at a specific time when he was on the show back in 17 or 18. I'm going to give you a little preview right now. I asked Don to call his shot again. So we do have a prediction at the end of this podcast. Don will make his prediction for this season. It's very interesting, and I'm excited to see whether or not he can prove this one to be true as well. So make sure you stay tuned in all the way to the end for this great conversation with Don Higgins. Let's get to it. All right, here with me now on the line, back again, is Mr. Don Higgins. Thank you, Don, for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. My pleasure. It's uh, It's been a couple of years since you've been on the show, and it was well past time that we had a reunion here and talked through things. But when I was thinking back to those last conversations we had on here, um, I realized that we left things on like a really, really high note. Cause I think the last time we did one of our main shows together was when you were either discussing the outcome or when you were calling your shots on how you were going to say, Hey, I'm going to kill a 200 inch buck this year. I'm going to shoot it from this blind. It's going to happen like this. Um, and it, we might've done one after that when you actually did it. But the long story short of it is that you called it. You actually killed the buck you said you were going to kill. Um, so with all that being said, I feel like there's a lot of pressure on you now today because you're back and we're all going to be expecting whatever you tell us today to be exactly what happens this season. So are you ready for, uh, for that kind of pressure done? I guess so. You know, I didn't realize it had been that long. That was 2017 and I I absolutely remember the podcast in the summer before that season. And then immediately after I shot the first buck, the 206 inch smoky. Uh, we did a podcast okay, yeah. and I said, my odds of seeing my second target buck, just laying eyes on him were about 5%, I think. And well, then a couple of days later I went hunting and I shot him Yeah, and I seen him for the first time ever and got a shot and killed him. So, uh, you brought me good luck last time. I hope you can do that again. I'm going to do my best. <laughs> I'm going to do my best. Okay. Yeah. It feels like that was just like a year ago or two years ago. Um, but when I, when I started looking into it too, I couldn't believe how fast that time has flown. It's all, I've had two children in the years in between that. So it's all kind of been chaos on my side, at least. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Well, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know how that goes. Pretty wild stuff. But um, yeah. I, you, you came to mind this month because we're doing this series all about the biggest, oldest bucks, kind of getting behind the scenes and into the minds of those deer, of those super mature deer, of those old, gnarly kind of ghosts. And, and you're one of those guys who has uh, perfected, I think, as close as you can the art of chasing that kind of deer. Um, you know, those examples you just mentioned being perfect, um, perfect illustrations of that, you know, killing those two deer back in, uh, I guess it was 17, you said. And it seems like you're back on the same kind of path now again this year, maybe. So my, my first question for you, Don, before we kind of dive into the meat and potatoes of all this is, uh, how do you feel about this season coming into it? We're just a couple weeks away from opening day there in Illinois. Um, I, I heard your recent buck forecast podcast. It sounds like you're a little bit um, maybe apprehensive, but I want to hear it straight from you. How are you feeling going into this season as far as your situation specifically and maybe the larger, um, you know, your larger take too? Well, you know, I had a really good buck that I passed last year. He's a five-year-old and uh, I had his sheds for the, from uh, the two previous seasons and this spring, uh, I wasn't able to find either one, but a friend of mine found one side from this spring and he would have scored in the, in the mid one eighties. And I was hoping he would have a good jump and antler score for this year, but he actually went backwards as did just about every mature buck that I was, uh, I'd been following. So, uh, you know, I think that was due to the drought. We had an extreme drought in May and June when those bucks, you know, are really um, setting the stage for that antler growth for the, for the year. And, and I think that set them all back throughout much of the Midwest because I've been hearing that from a lot of guys. But uh, for me individually, this buck uh, that was mid-180s last year, he's probably right there about the 180 mark, with give, give or take an inch or two, uh, 180 inches. He, he's six years old this year. He, he's, uh, we're going to get him shot. And I say we, because, uh, I've got two young grandsons that are going to hunt in the youth season and, uh, they'll be able to use a, uh, a, a rifle straight wall cartridge rifle. And if one of the, if he steps out in front of one of them boys, they're going to get the green light and go ahead and put the hammer down, you know? <laughs> um, so what I'm really excited about is that I've got some some young bucks, and when I say young, I'm talking four and younger, coming up on, on my property that show a world of potential. And uh, I, I want to get uh, these older bucks off the farm, get them shot, and allow these younger bucks to have the run of the place. Ideally, I would like to get these bucks shot in October. There, there's two in particular. There's also a big... Uh, four by four that's probably 170 inches so those two bucks i'd like to get off the farm in october before the rut heats up and and i I really don't even care if i'm the one that shoots them i'll have guests here my grandsons i'm going to keep everybody away until that youth season which i think is about the seventh eighth ninth or somewhere in there that that weekend Mm -hmm. uh in october but after that um, we're going to be hitting it hard. Um, if I can take a friend or somebody along with me, I will and allow them to, to shoot those bucks. Um, to be honest, I, I just, uh, the whole deer management thing on the farm, I, I just feel like I've taken this farm to a level 
that I never thought I ever could. And these young bucks that are coming up, I think, in all honesty, I think three of them have the potential to maybe be 200 inches. Now, I'm not saying they will. Maybe none of them will. Mm -hmm. But I think they've got enough going on on their head that they could potentially get there with some age. And I want to do everything I can to keep those bucks alive. And, you know, I, I just turned 60 years old about uh, three weeks ago, and I got a wall full of big deer. I, I don't need to pile on a bunch more deer in, on my wall. And if I can, you know, make someone season by allowing them to shoot some of these bucks, I get a, a big thrill out of that. Um, I, I've never been a guy to, to stack up numbers of deer. It's just not been my thing and, and nothing against people that travel all over the country and, you know, shoot three or four or five or however many big deer every year. That's great for them if that's their thing. It's just never been mine. And uh, I think once I shoot a buck, the work starts and, you know, then you got to process mm -hmm. that deer, get him out of the woods and everything else. You're putting pressure on your land and then you got to you got to search for your next target buck and. I like find after I found that target buck, that's when I really start having fun is kind of putting the pieces together, um, you know, until it's actually time to go after him. Yep. So do you think, I mean, I know you mentioned you want someone to shoot babe now, but it sounds like he's not your target buck as much anymore. And you mentioned the big eight pointer and a couple others that, you know, other folks might take a crack at, or maybe you, but is there any chance of like you having a real, real target buck that you're obsessing over and chasing after? Is there any possibility there's a deer like that out there still, or does it seem like this is going to be a waiting game for these other bucks to get to next year? Well, now I would, after the, the youth season, if I'm sitting by myself and babe comes along, I'm shooting him. Yeah. Um, I need to get him off the farm before November if I possibly can. And, uh, I, as far as having a giant target buck, now that, that 180 inch babe is probably my top end for this year. And, uh, yeah, if, if I get him great, if someone else does good for them. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned that babe was a six this year. Is that right? Yes. And, yep. and is he the oldest on the farm and around there or is that big eight pointer older or what's your, what's like the age top end of your age structure there right now? Um, no, I've got a couple of bucks that show up. They, they typically don't show up till after the rut. They show up in the late season for the food when the deer start congregating here for the food sources. Uh, I've got one that's probably, I, I bet he's at least eight and a half, if not nine and a half this year. I'd have wow. to go back and look at the history. He's not a big deer at all. He's probably high 130s, 140 at the, at the top. Um, just a clean four by four. He was, in, when he was younger, he was a five-by-five, five, but the last two years, and including this year would be, I guess, the third year, he's lost those G4s on both sides and just become a clean four-by-four. Four. Um, that buck needs shot, but he, he's really not one that's going to put too much pressure on these young bucks during the rut because he just isn't here during the rut. Uh, and then there's another buck that, that shows up late, and the weather has to be really bad or he doesn't show up. I mean... Mm -hmm. We need uh, some snow and really cold temperatures, and then he'll show up for the food. And again, he doesn't show up till late, so he's not uh, one I'm real too really too worried about. He's probably maybe 160 inches, and he's probably six seven years old. Okay, but the the big uh, four by four that I mentioned, it's 170 inches. He's a five year old, 
but he, he's just never going to be more than what he is right now. Yeah. So time for him to go. So when you look at these deer over the course of their life, as they mature, is there an age when you see a big jump, not in antler size, but in smarts or behavior? Like when is it when they switch from being like a young whippersnapper to a ghost? What's that age typically like in your experience? Well, I think the toughest bucks to kill are the four and five year olds. From from three to four, they make a huge jump in you know how hard they are to kill. Mm-hmm. Um, they just become a lot more wary and a lot more cautious. And once they hit about six, it seems like they become comfortable in whatever they're doing, and they let their guard down just a little bit. I know Bill Winkies wrote about that yep. in the past, and. I've heard others talk about it, and I, I agree 100% that now it, it might not happen at six with every buck, but six, seven, somewhere in there, their home range kind of shrinks down. They don't cover as much territory. They found their safe zone, their sanctuary, if you will, and they start moving within that area during daylight a little more than they did the, the two years before. I think that the toughest bucks to kill are probably four and five year olds. So, what? You mentioned a couple of things, but I'm curious, what are, with those four and five-year-old bucks, I guess, what's different about their behavior from the six, seven, eight-year-olds? With the, with the six, seven, eight-year-olds, I follow you. Like, they're starting to get comfortable. They, they kind of know where they're safe. They've got their really tight core area. And so, I can see how that could become a predictable. Um, what are you seeing with those four and five-year-olds that is making them so tricky? Are they, They're in that sweet spot where they're not dumb teenagers anymore, but they're not old farts that just want to lay on the couch, right? Yeah, I, the biggest thing is daylight movement. They, they just don't move in daylight as much. And uh, it, it doesn't make sense, but those older bucks, in, in my experience, seem to move more in daylight. Um, but now their home range is, is, is a lot smaller. Uh, so so they're, they're holding tight to an area they're really familiar with. And, and I think they just get overconfident in their survival abilities and their ability to detect danger. They're not moving in daylight everywhere, but within that small core area, they seem to move more in daylight. What's the trick? And I realize there's not a trick, <laughs> but uh, what's the key to getting a buck like that to that age and feeling overconfident in his zone? I, I've got some assumptions, but I'd like to hear from your perspective. You know, how do we get a buck to that age and feeling like, oh man, this is pretty slick. I've got it made. I can feel comfortable here. I'm confident um, and, and seemingly overconfident in your estimation. Um, what gets us there? Well, I think that, uh, you know, when, when bucks are young, I don't think there's one buck that's smarter than the other. I think a lot of it, which ones in, in most of the, the whitetails range, I, I think it's pretty much luck which bucks make it to the older age classes because as those bucks disperse as yearlings, um, you know, research has shown that depending on the the type of terrain they live in, the more open the terrain, the the farther they're going to disperse from their birth area, the more densely wooded or the more cover, the the shorter the distance they're going to disperse from their birth area. But I think that when those yearling bucks disperse, some of those bucks are just lucky and they happen to disperse to a property or a, a no hunting area or whatever 
where the hunting pressure is not as much and they survive to the next age class 100% on luck. And what I've tried to do with the management of my property, and we kind of got into it a little bit earlier when I talked about those young bucks that I want to make it, what I've tried to do is make my property a place that attracts a lot of those young bucks. I want to give them the security so they're safe. When they get here, they're not going to get shot. I want to give them all the food they want, a wide variety of food. Food diversity is, is huge. I want to give them the security, freedom of human intrusion. I want to give them large blocks of sanctuary cover that's never going to have a human step foot in it. And uh, I think once a, a young buck finds a place like that, he's got the food, he's got the cover, and then obviously there's going to be does there. I think you can hold a lot more of those young bucks. And then from that point, it's kind of a matter of managing your buck herd. And, uh, you know, th this is one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons I like Dr. Strickland's, Dr. Bronson Strickland from MSU Deer Lab, his research so well is because his research absolutely backs up my approach to management. And so when we get these bucks staying here, as yearlings and two-year-olds and then once they hit three you've got a pretty good idea of what that buck's going to be later in life uh, i mean the best yearling bucks as far as racks are going to be the best two-year-olds most of the time they're going to be the best three-year-olds so when they hit three you got a pretty good idea of what that buck is going to be when he matures and, and what i've tried to do is bring in guests and shoot a lot of three-year-olds that are at the lower end uh, of their age class. The best bucks in each age class, I want to protect them. And uh, starting at three years old. Now, there's a lot of those bucks that, I mean, they're, they're wild deer. And we can hunt them as hard as we want. That doesn't, that's no guarantee we're going to kill them. But those bucks that, that are on the hit list as three-year-olds are the worst three-year-olds. Yeah. And then we allow the best ones in each age class to move on up. And, uh, you know, that, that's been my approach to, to, you know, having a farm that produces some top end bucks. How, how much do you worry about educating your up and comers? So I'm imagining like you've got a, a top tier three-year-old or four-year-old, a buck that you really, really want to make it. But at the same time, I know like you're, you want to take out these, uh, big bully bucks or, or lower end younger bucks. And I'm, I'm assuming maybe you're shooting some does sometimes too. Um, if, if you're trying to do that, do you worry about educating that top end three and a half year? Let's say they're out in the food source at the same time and you, you've got a doe and you want to shoot some does, but also your, your high potential three-year-olds out there, your high potential four-year-olds out there. Are you worried about shooting a deer while he's out there and spooking them off? Uh, same thing with a, a big bully buck. Like, is that in your mind? Is that making your shoot or don't shoot decisions in any way more complicated? Uh, that's definitely something I take into consideration. And, you know, I've, I, I don't know how many tree stands I got on this property. I'm going to guess about, let's just say 15, give or take. Um, I, I've got certain stands that I absolutely will not shoot anything except a target buck. I'm not going to put any pressure on those stands uh, unless it's a giant. And, and most of those are like, they're right on the edge of the sanctuary. And I don't have any stands within the sanctuary, but I've got some stands on the edge of the sanctuary that I hunt with various wind directions. And there's various 
terrain features that pinch those deer up closer to the edge as they travel throughout that sanctuary. And I won't shoot a call buck, if you will. And I, I, I hate to use that term management buck. I say, I won't shoot a management buck, um, within the sanctuary they've got to step out of the sanctuary to get shot. And the sanctuary remains a sanctuary for the bucks that, that I want to raise or want to move on up. Um, I, I want them to always feel safe there and never feel pressure there. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire-charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. I think what it sounds like you've tried to do and what I think a lot of people want to do is, is try to maximize the number of you know top-tier mature bucks that will spend a lot of time on their property, right? Um, and I've heard you talk about different ways that you might be able to do that, whether it is doing what you just described there, which is trying to remove some of the competition. Um, but what else have you found can help you maximize the number of mature bucks or really good mature bucks that you can stack on your piece in addition to, you know, taking out some management bucks to open up slots, I guess we'll call them. Is there anything else with habitat or hunting that you're doing that allows that to, to possibly happen to get not just one big mature buck, but maybe you can get two or three or what's that max have you found two per hundred acres or 200 acres? I'm curious about that whole set of ideas. Well, one thing that I've, I've learned about mature bucks is that they're all different. It would be like uh, putting a, a group of, mature men around a table now they're all going to have certain tendencies you know yeah. um but they're all going to be individuals also and it's the same with these bucks and uh i think that's one of the things uh 
that helps me anyway to target specific bucks is that as I watch these bucks grow up and I put the pieces of the puzzle together as they're growing up, by the time they're mature, I know what they're going to do. And, uh, before they do it each fall and that allows me to be a step ahead of that buck instead of a step behind him when I go to hunt him. So it, it comes down to the individual personalities. There's some bucks that absolutely, they don't want to be here. I've got too many deer, too many bucks on my place. And I, I get bucks that come along that, that don't like it here. And so they will go to outlying areas. Now they'll visit, they'll, they'll come through here and look for does. And in the winter, when food's tough to find, they'll show up but they really don't like spending a lot of time around all these other deer. But there's other individual bucks that don't mind it at all. And I'm talking mature bucks, four, five, six, seven years old. They'll walk out and it doesn't matter. It could be November and two or three of them will walk out together into a food plot to look for does. Hmm. They don't mind each other's company. And those are the ones that I, I think are a lot easier for me because I got a fairly small property. Uh, if I had several hundred acres, um, it'd be different. And the other thing I've tried to do is besides diversifying my uh, food sources, I've really tried to diversify my bedding cover into, you know, I've got the switchgrass fields. Yeah. I've got, well, I got three different getting ready to plant. Next spring, I'll plant my fourth different field in switchgrass. So you know, I've got one place on the farm. It's in a, actually there's two that I can think of off the top of my head that are within these switchgrass fields that I've always got a good buck bedded there. One of them is in a corner where uh, two miscanthus edges uh, form a corner in the switchgrass. And there always seems to be a good buck bedded there. Another one is there. there's a kind of a wash throughout the switchgrass field and on one hillside, uh, there's a spot where there always seems to be a good buck bed. And uh, by by breaking it up like that, and really thick cover helps too, because, you know, a buck is bedded in that switchgrass. He can't see, you know, 10 feet in front of him. And, yeah, he, he, he knows what's around him, and he can smell other deer and whatever, but he doesn't see them like he would in like an open wooded type cover. So, uh, you know, diversity of, of bedding cover helps. And then breaking it up, you know, into different sections of, of bedding cover so that, you know, one buck is bedded into this switchgrass patch. And then over there's another switchgrass yep. patch with another buck. And I, I've, I've learned a lot uh, since starting to manage this farm 30 years ago or put it together and it kind of blew out, blew away some of the, the ideas that, that people have in regards to management of bucks and, um, and, and that's one of the things is I, I, I'm holding way more bucks than I ever thought I could. What would that, well, what, what is that in your estimation? Like how many, I mean, I recognize it's like a rough estimate, but how many bucks are you holding? How many mature bucks do you think are on that? Uh, I'm just kind of curious what you have achieved given those ideas you just mentioned. Well, that varies by the, the time of the season sure. in the summer. I've got none here really. During the rut, you know, I will have, let's just say bucks that are four and older. Typically, I'll have at least a half a dozen wow. four and older bucks on 120 acres. Yeah. Um, during the late season, when the, the rut's over and we get bad weather and they're concentrated on the food, 
you know, I, I can probably up that by at least two or three others showing up. So I could actually have up to 10 bucks, four years old and older during the late season. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. So you, you mentioned that one of the truisms of old bucks is that they're usually all different. They've got those unique personalities, just just like mature old men, right? We've all got our personality traits and quirks. Um, but is there anything that you found to be a trend or or pretty true across the board when you do get to those five, six, seven, eight-year-old deer? Is there anything that does stand out as, as almost as close as you get to a rule? Um, I guess you mentioned one being like the tighter core area. Um, but is there anything else that does stand out as pretty darn consistent with those deer? Yeah, without a doubt, um, you know, I'm, I'm a, any mature buck desires freedom of human intrusion. And the older they get, the more important that becomes to them. And, and when their home range shrinks as they get older, it's shrinking around that area that they have found the least amount of human intrusion. And, and that's why I think it's so important how you manage a property. And, you know, I know, Mark, we talked before we started recording here that you just got on the, the Whitetail Master Academy, mm-hmm. and we just released a video a day or two ago uh, titled The Four Cornerstones of Building a World-Class Whitetail Property, and that's exactly what we're talking about here. And, and I think one huge key is, uh, and it's the number one on the video, just to give everybody a preview, is the layout of the property. And the layout of the property is, is it's, it's something you can do nothing about. It's what you're given. Uh, it's terrain features. It's how it connects to other properties around it. And, and that's huge. Every property has a ceiling. You know, the, the top end box that you're ever going to grow there is the ceiling. And some properties have a lot higher ceiling than others. And I, when I started, I never realized that my property, the ceiling is 200 inches plus. Yeah. I, I just didn't see that coming. Other properties in other areas of the country, the top end may be 120 inches. And you're no matter what you do as a land manager, you're never going to get past that. And that's often due to the layout of the property, how it connects with what's around it. I mean, if you got 40 acres and, and you got extreme hunting pressure on all sides of you, then guys that are shooting anything that walks, you're going to have a hard time, you know, getting bucks past about two years old. And you got to start when you want to build a world-class property, you got to start with a property that lays out good. Yeah. So uh, back to something you said a second ago, which was these really old deer don't want human pressure. Right. And, and they find that they seek out those places based on the layout. They can find those pockets where they feel safe. And as we talked about earlier, they, they seem to find that zone where they build confidence, where they've consistently stayed away from humans. They become comfortable there. Um, I've wondered with that kind of deer that, that demands an absence of human pressure. Once they get to that age, six, seven, eight years old, I'm curious if they, if you found them to be more or less impacted by pressure at that point, because part of me thinks like, well, if a deer seven or eight and he's found his little bedding spot and his little sanctuary and he's been safe there over the years, it might be pretty hard to push that deer out of there because he he knows this place works for him. Like it's worked for him for years and years. My assumption might be like, man, if I, if I did have to get aggressive, it would probably take a lot and a consistent amount of pressure to finally push this deer out of there or to blow him out because 
the years have proven this to be safe for them. So that's one assumption. But maybe the flip side is true, which is, man, they're so sensitive to it. That's the only reason why they survived to this point. Um, they're not going to tolerate anything. What's your experience been with how a really mature buck handles, you know, some kind of intrusion or an aggressive hunt into his sanctuary when he's seven, um, or you make a mistake and he he smells you on the edge or something like that? What have you seen in those situations? Well, I, that really comes back to the individual buck again. Some of them will tolerate almost nothing, and others will tolerate a lot. Um, I think the big thing with those deer is that uh, when you're doing projects besides hunting, working food plots, checking trail cameras or whatever, the last thing you want to do is slip up on a buck and bed him or jump him real close to his bed. Um, if he can hear you coming on a, you know, a tractor or whatever, he has time to decide how he wants to react. Does he want to just put his head down to the ground and let you pass by? Does he want to, you know, skip away, you know, keep his head low to the ground and trot into the brush? What's he want to do? And as long as he escapes that encounter, um, he feels confident in, in his method. If he lays tight and lets you pass, he feels he, he just gains confidence in that approach to danger. Right. And as time goes on, as the years roll by, he becomes more and more likely to, to lay tight and let danger pass. Um, if he flees, then he's be, and he lives because he fleed, he becomes more likely to flee. And I think it's a lot of times <clears throat> these bucks are, they, they've got a memory, you know, they remember where they encountered danger, for example. They remember where they smelled that guy in his tree stand or they seen that guy climbing the tree or whatever and they file that away for later use and i think to some degree we can turn that around against them we can condition them to certain human activities on a property and it's actually putting no pressure whatsoever for example working food plots they hear the guy coming on the tractor and they know he's in this one little area for a while and then he leaves yep you know they they get used to that so i think we can we condition these bucks as they're younger and growing up to react in certain ways to different forms of pressure yep have you have you taken advantage of that then from a hunting perspective i I imagine there are some certain ways you've done that but have you been able to over the years condition them to certain things that then you know not only allow you to get a food plot in without blowing up your property but actually have led to hunting success well, when I go to hunt, I don't want that deer to have any idea that I'm anywhere around. I want to slip in silent and get in my stand or my blind or whatever. And uh, because I think once he knows there's human activity in the area, he's not going to just freely get up and waltz around for a period of time. Now, whether that period of time is a couple hours or until it's dark can vary by buck to buck. So when I go hunting, I want to slip into that stand without spooking any deer whatsoever. I want to go in silently. I don't want somebody dropping me off on a tractor or anything like that. I want to get in as silent as possible and undisturbed or, and have undisturbed deer, you know, around me. Yep. Makes sense. So let's, let's paint a picture here of now again, knowing that each deer is unique. So you're going to have to bear with me here and, and generalize a little bit, but if you were, let's say, 
writing a book right now. We're painting a picture of a day in the life of this super mature buck. We're going to talk one of these six or seven or eight-year-old bucks that's made it to the tippy top of the mountain. I want to talk about what that buck's life looks like and how he chooses a bed and when he gets up and moves off to feed and how he travels to a food source, how he chooses what food source he wants to go to in a given day. Can you walk me through a hypothetical of, of what you've seen or learned about how a deer like that might operate in a day like that? And I guess and one, well, one, one I, qualifier, sorry, Don, specifically keying in on like how the choices he makes or things he does are different than that three-year-old or four-year-old buck, right? Yeah. And I think again, that changes throughout the season. Yeah. Um, but typically, you know, his bed is going to be chosen where he can either, where, where he's, he feels he's not going to encounter danger. That that could be a wide open, you know, woods where there's just never been any human activity <clears throat> that he's encountered or human scent on the ground that he's encountered. Um, it might be the thickest, nastiest stuff. It may be a switchgrass field where he can't see three feet in front of his face. But he wants to be someplace where he knows the the likelihood of him encountering danger is very low. And the other thing he wants is, is he wants an opportunity if danger does come along to be able to escape that danger. So he's got a direction he can flee. I know a lot of in more um, heavily wooded areas, bucks like to bed out on ridge points and sitting laying up on that ridge point, you know, they can survey all the terrain around them and danger comes from one direction they just bail off the ridge the opposite direction yeah um you, you know he's, he's covering all his bases and that that's the the area where he wants to, to bed he also uh when it comes to getting up from that bed and heading towards food you know you know that's where these older bucks become easier to kill because i think if they've never encountered danger on the route from their bed to their food they are more likely to take a chance with the wind and not that they do it very often but you know maybe one day out of the month they, they'll give up the wind to hit that food source now if there's pressure they're never going to give it up hardly um and, and when he goes to that food um he either wants a, a lot of times if there's heavy cover on one side of that food source he, he will run the downwind edge of that food source in the cover send it as the scent blows out of the food source back towards him to make sure it's safe. And then at some point he'll turn and go right into the wind as he hits that food source. But he, he wants to use uh, the wind as much as he can. You know, my favorite setup for hunting a buck is, you know, I'm, I want to kill him on purpose. I, I mean, there's a lot of big bucks get killed by blind luck every year, but I I, I want to negate the luck factor as much as possible, and yeah. I want to I, I want him to I, I want to try to figure what he's going to do because that puts the odds in my favor. And if you've got a, a food source and you got an, a known food source where you you suspect he's going to go that afternoon, and you got a place where you suspect he's bedded that day, he's going to move from from point A to point B, and he wants to have the wind. Well, instead of giving him the wind straight in his nose, as he makes that journey from the bed to the food, if he's got a quartering wind, so it's not straight in his nose, but it's 
it's hitting his nose at an angle. Well, that allows me to get off to the side mm -hmm. just enough where my scent is blowing in his direction, but it's blowing off to the side of his direction. So he's actually doing everything that a big buck should to stay alive. But the wind is just enough in your favor that you can be on the right side of the trail and him not sent you. Now, if he was on the other side of the trail, he would catch you for sure. Yeah. But uh, that quartering nose wind is the ideal situation for killing a mature buck. So, so I have tried to pull off that kind of setup plenty of times over the years. And one thing that I have found to be challenging is in areas with high deer densities, especially a lot of does, um, mm -hmm. and having that wind that you know is just barely right, um, start doing a little switching on me throughout the hunt. It'll kind of curve over and kind of curve back, and you get that slightly shifting wind, and then getting busted because there's just too many deer around. Um, have you found there to be a certain wind speed that you need to make that work? Do you, do you want it to be pretty high and consistent? Um, do you avoid really low winds or, or does any of that matter when choosing a day that you're going to hunt like that? And if, if that's not the thing, is there anything else you've done to negate the threat? I'm talking about the risk of getting boogered by a dill before your big guy comes in. Well, it all starts with where is your scent going? And you want that scent going in an area where there's low likelihood that there's going to be deer to, to catch your scent. Um, I like a, a wind of about say 10 12 miles an hour that's steady uh, i don't want a light and variable wind that you, you know you check it three times and it's going three different directions yeah, it's the worst <laughs> uh, i want to yeah keep it steady um the other thing is uh thermals come into play big time um you, you as you get into the evening that, that really becomes a factor you know because uh as things start cooling down that your scent starts dropping and makes it, you know, a lot more likely that anything downwind is going to smell you. But ha having that, your scent going into an area with a low likelihood of a deer encountering it, it is huge. Whether it be an open field, um, and deer can come out in open fields, but, uh, you know, if you got a prime food source past you, they're, they're more likely to go hit that prime food source. And you, you got to have an idea where the deer are coming from and where they're going. A really good idea but uh as far as scent elimination products i think they probably most of them work to some degree but um i, I don't trust them at all i it's 100 percent the wind for me if if a deer if there's a good wind and the deer's not downwind of you he's not going to smell you i don't care if you worked in a hog barn all day mm -hmm. if he just it's not going to happen yeah speaking of wind and how they use wind when when going to feed um, you mentioned when they're choosing where they want to bed, they want safety and they want an escape route. Um, but there's also some theories around how they might use wind when choosing where they bed. Do you see anything like that? Do you think wind impacts where they choose to bed? And if so, how? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, I've got a video out on that as well, where I show real life examples of if a buck knows he wants to bed at a certain spot, he will... First, a lot of times they do this in the dark before it's even daylight. They will run the downwind edge of that area they're going to bed mm -hmm. to scent check it first, and then they will J-hook right back into it in bed. Um, I've seen that many times on morning hunts. It usually happens right at daylight with a mature buck, and 
like I said, a lot of times it happens before the sun's even up. We don't even see it happen. But, yeah, they'll run the downwind edge of that bedding cover. And, and that's one of those deals, you know, where I see and hear stories or whatever occasionally where a guy says, well, um, I found my where my target buck is bedding, so I'm going to go in about 3 in the morning, and I'm going to get in my stand about 3 in the morning and beat him to his bed, and I'm going to be waiting there for him. Well, that's fine and dandy until he runs the downwind <laughs> edge in the dark scent checks and finds you and then vacates the area without you ever knowing it even happened yeah yeah that's one of those easier said than done kind of things for sure right so you mentioned that there's maybe like a bell curve with these deer as far as the ease of hunting them and maybe ease isn't the right word but if we're looking at those one two three-year-old bucks being relatively easy because they're moving a lot they're making mistakes and then they hit that four and five-year-old range and now they you know shrink that what they're doing, they're not as active. Maybe they're a little less daylight active. Um, but then when you reach that other side of the curve, six, seven, eight, now they've gotten overconfident. They found their safe area. Um, you mentioned that maybe those deer become easier to hunt in a certain way because you know them. You've got years of history. You've developed an understanding of their personality traits. How do you go about keeping track of all that stuff with one of these deer? Is it all just in your head? Or do you take notes? Do you have a journal? Do you track data and pictures and observations in a, a spreadsheet or anything? Like, how do you make sure this stuff isn't just one ear and one out the other? Well, it's my life's passion. So a lot of it's in my head, but a lot of it is also trail camera data that I, I store. But, you know, we should probably back up just a second, Mark, because sure. I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. When, when that buck starts becoming easier to hunt as he gets older, he's never going to be as easy as he was at three. A yeah. three-year-old buck is still a pretty easy buck to kill. And, and yeah, he's going to be easier than maybe he was at four and five. But that as that bell curve starts to slope off on the other side, it's go, it's not going to be a sharp drop or boom, all of a yeah. sudden he becomes easy. Great point. It's going to be a slow, gradual decline where he becomes slightly easier but he's never going to become as easy as he was as a three-year-old yeah. on the other side of that curve. Yeah. So. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for clarifying that. Um, so, so you're, you're tracking your photos. You've got a lot in your head when you're sitting down leading into a season or leading into a hunt. What's that like analysis process look like for you when you're trying to choose, like, how do I figure out how do I kill this buck? Right. Let's say, you know, let's say babe makes it through youth season and you're going to try to get out there and, and get him, get him on the ground, you know, and you're thinking through all your years of history with him. Are you looking back on individual? I mean, I know your big annual patterns. So like, are you thinking through man last year, he daylighted on this date and I don't have the right wind, but it's the annual pattern. Like, can you walk me through your evening before a hunt or whenever it is where you do this whole I don't know what it looks like for you. For me, it's kind of like those detective movies where there's like a thousand pictures on the wall and strings between all the pictures and the guy in the back, like pulling his hair out, trying to figure it out. What's that look like for you? Well, as I'm watching these bucks mature, um, I'm, it's not like I, I, one night I go and sit at my computer and I figure out what I want to do. It's the, the pieces are slowly coming together over years before I target that buck. And even like a year or two before I'm going to target that buck, I know where my best chances to kill him are. Like 
I'll know that I've got two or three stands on my farm where my very best odds at killing that deer are. And I will wait for the perfect conditions for those stands and slip in and do it. And maybe, maybe it's a certain time of the year, you know, like I know once the bucks first week in November, the bucks are starting to, you know, scrape and, and move a little bit more. I know I can count on this buck to move, to be at this particular location. And that's, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about there's certain stands. I just won't shoot a management buck from, um, because I don't want to booger them up for, you know, a, a primary target buck. And so I, I know where I'm going to kill him. Um, that, that's the big thing. And then I just wait for the conditions to be perfect for that location. And there may be two or three of those locations that take totally different um, conditions to, to be prime. But whatever it is, I wait for the prime, the prime opportunity and the prime location and I get in and get it done. Yeah. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Uh, If you're willing to share this, I don't know if you are or not, but if you're willing to share, could you detail for us what you think one of those hypothetical prime locations might look like for babe like uh, what i'm what i'm oh, getting absolutely. at what i'm getting at is like trying to get a clear picture of like what is one of these bulletproof setups where you can kill a six-year-old buck that's kind of the idea i'm going mm-hmm. for here so if you've got an example you're willing to share i'd love to hear like the the very specific details like how you're getting in how you're getting out what it's set up why he should come through there when he should come through there um and what makes that kind of place unique compared to your average run-of-the-mill setup Yep. I got a, I'll just describe perfectly one of the stands that I, I think I have. It's actually a blind in this location. Um, a great chance to kill babe and it's on the edge of the sanctuary. But when I've got these stands on the edge of the sanctuary, I'm doing everything I can to make that stand. I mean, I want to do everything I can to turn a good stand into a great stand. And sometimes that's, using a terrain feature or down trees or whatever to push that buck a little bit closer to the edge, mm-hmm. you know, where it's going to push him up to the edge, um, where I can slip in and have a stand and slip in undetected and hunt that stand. And then there's pretty high odds that he's going to come within range. Well, in this particular location, I've planted a, a small grove of fruit trees in a little opening within the sanctuary and it's close to the edge and uh, on the edge of the sanctuary i created a sanctuary 
25, 30 years ago, planted pine trees. So around the edge, there's two rows of pine trees, which screens his view out to the open ag fields. And I will walk across the open ag field with the wind right in my face. Um, I Just as soon as I get to that first row of pines, I'm going right up the ladder into the blind that's situated between those two rows of pines. And then right in front of that is a handful of, of pear and apple trees, probably, I'm going to guess, maybe seven or eight trees, <clears throat> but they do produce fruit now. They're big enough. And then beyond that, surrounding that little grove of fruit trees is thick prime bedding cover. Well, in previous years, I'll, I'll keep a, a trail camera on that grove of fruit trees. In previous years, Babe has been there in October in daylight quite frequently eating pears and apples before he heads out to the other food plots or ag fields to feed after dark. So it's just a prime location where I could not only, I mean, it's a place where you could sit and see eight or 10 bucks in one afternoon, but he's shown me that he's not afraid to come in and feed there in daylight an hour before dark. Um, especially the pears. He seems to really like those pear trees as do a lot of deer. But uh, those pear, there's two bigger pear trees that are right in front of that blind, probably 20 yards. And uh, there's a great opportunity. And, and he's already moved into that area. I'm getting his pictures right now around that bedding area. Nice. And uh, there, there's a very, very good chance that he could be shot right there out of that blind. But I need a south wind and uh, a a fairly steady wind so that if I happen to make a little noise climbing up in that blind, I mean, he's going to be bedded within a hundred yards of that blind wow. in that thick stuff. But, uh, a steady South wind will allow me to do that. Is that a spot where he's, you're, is that South wind going to give him the wind a little bit and he's going to feel comfortable heading in there? Or is this a situation where it's so thick, so screened, he's comfortable just moving 80 yards out of his bed or whatever, despite the wind not being good for him? He's typically going to come in with a crosswind. Okay. So he's not going to come in with a tailwind coming straight from the, the south with the wind at his back, but he's going to come in um, from one end or one side of that that little grove of fruit trees, and he's going to have a crosswind. Okay. But at the same time, he feel, he's never been pressured in that bedding sanctuary. He's never been pressured around those fruit trees. That, that's one of those spots that I'm never going to shoot a coal buck there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds dynamite. Uh-huh. You, you mentioned that he was daylight there last October. Is that right? Yeah, and in fact, if you want, I, I can send you some pictures of him at that pear tree for yeah. your thumbnail or whatever for this podcast or yeah, to put to on the that. screen as we're talking here. So that brings to mind one of the things I've always wondered about, which is as these bucks get older and older, and their core range kind of shrinks down. Have you seen that their annual patterns get tighter too? Like, do they, be, do they become even more locked into a routine? Um, or is that, or has that not been the case in your experience? And, you know, I, I think once they hit about uh, four years old, they're pretty much locked in. Um, I don't think they lock in anymore, but it basically each successive year just kind of reaffirms what their annual pattern is. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we talked about this years ago, um, your theories around annual patterns, but I guess I'm just curious if, if that's evolved at all or, 
how you have how other variables impact your thoughts on annual patterns because I I am constantly studying this now too and I'm looking back at when a deer did something last year and when he did it the year before and one of the things I'm debating a lot is trying to understand did he do this because of the date on the calendar so is this like a time of year thing or did he do this because of a other variable like a weather condition wind direction something like that and so what I've found sometimes is I'll be looking at a hunt coming up and I'm like man this buck daylighted for two days during this first week of December let's say um, so I see like a possible annual pattern kind of thing he moved back in this area in December so there's an opportunity there um, but what if the weather doesn't match or is not that good or what if the wind is very different than what it was last year during that period is it worth trying the right time of year to catch the pattern even if the conditions don't match up or if the conditions are a little bit risky or something like that um, what's your take on that well i think that uh you know I, i've talked a lot about um, the annual pattern on various podcasts and magazine articles and whatever mm-hmm. and i think I did not do a real good job of explaining. I think people take it a little bit too literal. Like he showed up on November 5th. So next year on November 5th, I need to be right where that camera was at. And it's a little bit looser than that. I think on November 5th, the following year, he's going to be right close. He's going to be in that location. Now, whether he's going to be on his feet, whether you just mentioned may, you know, cause him to remain bedded, but he's going to be close to there. And typically, you know, he's not just coming through for a day or two. When he moves into a different part of his range, it's for a period of time. So I know in that in the situation I just described, if he shows up on November 5th, I know that, you know, around November 5th, give or take a few days either side, I've got a really good chance to kill that buck really close to where I got his picture. It doesn't have to be right there at that exact spot, but real close. And the day doesn't have to be the exact day, but real close to that date. Yeah. So how much weight though, do you put on those outside factors? So, so that being wind or temperature, anything like that. So knowing that you've got a few days on either side that he's going to be in the zone, um, does that mean typically, let's say, you, November 5th was the day last year, so now you're looking at a couple days on either side of November 5th. Would it just be that you are now looking for when is the day or the two days within that six-day window when I've got the right wind and I've got a slightly more advantageous weather system, something like that? The, the biggest thing that's going to make a buck change that pattern is human intrusion, hunting pressure, um, you know, somebody... there's some form of human intrusion within that close proximity that's going to cause him to vacate that area. That's the biggest factor that's going to cause him to, to switch that annual pattern. Another annual pattern thought that came to mind. I have hunted deer on an annual and thought about their annual patterns, but then thought about what's the impact of the crop rotation on that. So let's say like I'm hunt like I'll give you a perfect example. I'm hunting a deer this year. He's a five and a half year old buck. He's the oldest buck in this area that I can hunt. Um, and so I have, I have four years of data from this deer. I've, I've noticed him when he was two. So I've kept track of him since he was two. He's now five. And I'm looking at what he did last year. 
And I'm looking at what he did as a three-year-old. I'm thinking to myself, well, what he did last year is probably valuable in a lot of ways because he was four last year. He's five now. He's, you know, was kind of mature last year. So that kind of behavior patterns are probably similar. On the flip side, it's a corn year this year. And it was a corn year when he was a three and a half year old. So do I give more weight to what he did as a three-year-old, even though he was a crazy three-year-old, but at the same time, that was the year I had corn. Um, or do I pay attention more to what he did last year because he was a four-year-old, he's smarter, but it was beans. Um, what would you think about that situation? Well, you know, I live in an area where there's agriculture everywhere. So the crop rotation, and I've I've actually tried to, to note crop rotation on as I'm putting together annual patterns and things to see if if that affected at all. And, and I have not seen it here because let's say a buck is keying in on soybeans and this particular field is corn this year instead of soybeans. Well, there is where I'm at, there's going to be a soybean field in close proximity. There's mm-hmm. just so much ag around me. If I was in a different type of terrain, um, then it would probably have a, a much bigger impact. And that that's one thing I've, I've really noticed about that. There's some, you know, a lot of deer hunters I really respect, um, big name deer hunters, that their opinions on certain things differ from my own. And mm-hmm. as I've, I've really looked at that, because I know these guys are killing giants too, and they're doing it consistently. And, but, but yet their opinions on certain things are like 180 degrees different than mine. <laughs> yeah. And I think Dr. Strickland really opened my eyes on this because he comes from the South, you know, his region is totally different than mine and yeah. he he opened my eyes to the the i think it's a fact even that deer habits change from region to region and what works for me in the midwest in the heavy agriculture region you know it might not work near as well for say someone like uh, dan infault who, who's holding the, who i have a lot of respect for i read his stuff and i mean you can just tell when you when you get to a certain point and another deer hunter puts something out, there's a certain point where you just know this guy is the real deal. Mm-hmm. Dan Infault's the real deal, but he hunts a totally different type of terrain than I do. And so while his opinion on and mine on certain things may vary, I think it's regional. I don't, don't think it's one of us is right and one of us is wrong. I think it's the difference is the difference in regions or the type of terrain that we're hunting. And, uh, I just see that with a lot of different guys that I respect that are dropping giants, but yet we don't align a hundred percent on some certain things. And I think it's regional differences. And I think as hunters, anybody listening to this podcast, you need to really take that into consideration and, uh, and not think that this guy is wrong or this guy's right. It's that this guy is right for his region. This guy's right for his region. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's certainly one thing I've seen too. Like over the years of doing this podcast, talk to so many different people that are consistently successful on big old bucks. And there are so many differences <laughs> between them. Um, there's just, mm-hmm. like you said, there's so many regional differences and then also just styles, right? Like one thing might work for a person because they're a certain way or their properties that they hunt are a certain way. Um, you know, there's just so many different circumstantial factors that can make one thing work in a certain spot and not work in the other or, or personality traits in the hunter themselves. So that's a great yep. point to bring up that, that a lot of this has to be kind of passed through a filter of 
what's right for your area, what's right for you, what's right for your personal goals, what's right for your available time, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and another perfect example is Bobby Worthington. You know, he hunts mm-hmm. the mountains of East Tennessee, totally different than what I'm hunting in central Illinois. And uh, him and I absolutely have opposite approaches to chasing giant bucks. I mean, he's way more aggressive. He, he's, he doesn't have a choice. He's going to be in the deep timber. Yeah. Because everywhere he goes is the deep timber from my perspective. Where I'm out on the edges, I'm giving the deer the cover and I'm sitting out on the edge. Bobby's in the cover. Yep. And you can't argue with his success. So, yeah, there's a lot of good hunters approaching things from different angles. But they're, they're the big thing is they're hunting different regions of the country. I mean, I think southern Iowa, you know, the hotbed, if you will, of giant whitetails. Um, the approach that those guys are using there is totally different than my management approach where I'm at in central Illinois, where it's not heavily managed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So speaking of things that hunters like to debate or differ on, maybe there's all sorts of different theories and now even apps and tools that try to predict what kind of conditions will get deer to move more often or get a buck daylight, whatever it is. Um, so I want to remove all the does out of the equation. I want to remove all our one and a half year olds and two and a half year olds and three and a half year olds and maybe four and a half year olds. When we look at things like temperature, wind speed, barometric pressure, anything related to the moon, cold fronts, precipitation, anything like that. Is there any one of those things that stands out to you as really making a difference for those old, old bucks? Like what, is there anything that, that in your mind truly does make a difference when you're hunting a six or seven year old buck that when you see that coming in the forecast or, or whatever it is, you think to yourself, okay, yeah, this is one of those special opportunities. Well, I think there's, there's two things. First of all, the rut, the rut's going to have those big bucks moving more than they typically would in daylight. The other thing is, is really huge. And I think, you know, when I wrote my first book, um, I kind of brushed off the late season. This the late season's a time where it's all about luck and the, the property you have access to and this and that. And the property you have access to is right to some degree. But in the late season, if you can get brutal cold weather conditions, um, snow helps, but, but it needs to be cold. There's no such thing as a nocturnal buck. Uh, when it gets zero, those bucks have to consume a lot of calories to stay alive. And they're going to be on their feet in daylight. Every afternoon, they're getting up and they're headed to food somewhere. And if you happen to be on the right food source, on the right path leading to the food source, you're going to see deer and, and the, the mature buck is going to be coming along right with the rest of them. That, in my opinion, the very, very best time to kill a mature buck on purpose is during the late season, during a brutal cold spell. And if you look at Iowa, look at that that late muzzleloader season they have at Iowa and how many giants are killed over soybean fields or whatever in that late muzzleloader season, those bucks are not, no longer nocturnal. They have to be on their feet feeding, and, and that's when they become the most vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, hard to argue with that. Speaking of the rut you mentioned a second ago, what have you seen as far as how these really old deer partake in the rut? Um, I know they're doing a lot of things differently than a three-year-old. What have you seen unique to that, like top 
age class of buck? Are they getting active earlier, later? Do they lock down for a longer or shorter period? Do they do anything unique in your in your eyes? So last season, I had a really unique circumstance and, and something I'd never seen before. And, and I had a buck on my farm that I know was nine and a half years old. I'd followed him since he was three and a half. And this buck has been here every fall. During the two falls before, when he was seven years old and eight years old, he like forgot the rut. He, he did not. I mean, he did not move until it was <laughs> dark. Um, he would just go to feed. Never seen him at a scrape, anything like that. Seven, eight. He, he forgets about the rut. Last year, he's nine and a half years old, and at nine and a half years old, he's running around like a three-year-old, chasing <laughs> does, grunting, working scrapes. And I could have killed him two or three times real easy. Now he he actually ended up going off my property and getting and I got a picture of him as he's leaving, and within thirty minutes of him walking off the property, he got shot wow. and killed. So, you know, he came back and I'd never seen anything like it. At nine years old, he he started acting like a three year old again, but at seven and eight, he didn't hardly participate in the rut that I seen whatsoever, and and almost zero daylight movement. He, he became like a nocturnal recluse. He basically avoided the rest of the deer herd. He would bed by himself. He would feed by himself. And then boom, at nine years old, here he comes, you know, acting like a teenager again. And wow. And I guess it's like when those old men, you know, my age in their sixties and they go out and they buy a new Corvette and they start chasing <laughs> young girls or something. But, uh, yeah. That's a great, I, I'd, I'd never seen that before. Yeah, that's a great analogy. So you're so if that's unusual, then would you say the usual behavior you're seeing from a six or seven or eight year old buck is that they do participate, but at some point they trend down a little bit, or 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 what is it? Well, it comes down to the individual buck. I, I'd never seen one totally become a recluse like he did at seven and eight. Um, I, I think it slowly tapers off, but you know I've got the other buck here that I told you about that comes you know, uh, in the late season, that's probably, I don't know, eight or nine years old. Now I'd have to go back and look at, at some history, but, uh, you know, he's chasing does when he comes in the late season, he's still chasing does around. And, um, if other bucks, if there happens to be a doe fawn coming in heat or whatever, and bucks are chasing around, he'll join right in the chase. So I, I think it's individual. Um, the, the, the nine and a half year old I described earlier, that's a very unique situation. I've never seen anything like that before, you know, with an older buck. Yeah. So it seems if there's any theme through a lot of this that we're, we're talking about, maybe the very most, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, but maybe one of the very most important things that we need to keep in mind when it comes to understanding and targeting like one of these old, old deer is just that number one, they're all different. Like at that point, especially, they really develop personalities. They all have those unique traits. So probably the best thing we can do if we're at the point where we want to hunt deer like that is just pay super close attention to all those unique factors with each unique buck. Like figure out that personality. Do your homework. Do your studying. Think about it, right? Yeah, and that's where trail cameras are huge. I mean, having a... a uh, a lot of trail cameras out helps you to 
know where that buck is at and what he's doing at various times of the season. And, and, and you do that with the same buck for three seasons, you know, you've got a pretty good idea what he's going to be doing on the fourth season. And that's where I'm sitting with Babe. You know, I, I know he's going to be hitting those fruit trees. And he may not hit them every afternoon before dark. But if I hunt if, if I hunt that blind, every time the conditions are good for me to slip in undetected and slip out undetected, uh, I'm going to get a crack at him there. Yeah. So, speaking of these these personalities and these old bucks, if you were to think back over all your years, You've hunted a lot of these big old deer. Is there any one super mature buck that stands out in your mind as having taught you the most important lesson? Is there any buck that taught you more than any other or that right now you can think back on and say, oh yeah, either a buck you got or a buck you didn't get. I'm not sure which is going to be for you, but is there one that stands out for you as, as having really you know, drove home something really, really important for you? And if so, can you share with us that story and what that lesson was? Yeah, so I, I don't even have to think twice about this. It would be the second buck I shot back in 2017, Trump. Yep. Um, you know, I came on your podcast in the yep. summer. I said, I'm going to kill Smokey. Killed him. We got on another podcast. And a day or so later, I killed Trump. Yep. Trump's personality was so different than any other mature buck I'd ever chased. There was absolutely no pattern whatsoever to that deer. <laughs> um, he, he would show up here, there, and everywhere. And if you got his picture here one day, you was not getting his picture there the next day or, or the day after. He was here. He was there. He was there. And it was just 100% random. And the year I shot him, he was seven and a half years old. And the day I shot him was the first time I ever laid eyes on that deer. Wow. I'd only seen him in trail camera pictures. And what he taught me was that I totally had to change my approach to hunt that deer because as his rack blew up the year before. So I started really, um, I was trying to, to shoot him the year before actually. And, and I was expanding my range where I could hunt by gaining access or permission to hunt properties where I thought he might be. And I was putting trail cameras in places I'd never had them before. And yeah, I'd get his trail camera on this property and that property and this property, all random. And uh, as well as the place where I'd originally got his, his picture. And boy, as I'm sitting there that summer trying to think of how am I going to get Trump? I've never laid eyes on this buck yet. And, and most of the bucks I shoot, I've seen them before when they were younger, but Trump is one I'd never seen, you know, firsthand before. And, and typically I, I had to totally change my approach to hunt that buck. And I think that's the lesson here is to be, uh, open to, you know, throwing everything out the window and, and doing something that you would never typically do. And that's what I did with him is I hunted, I, I looked at all those properties where I had his picture. And I thought, well, I could hunt him here, and I could, or I could hunt him there. And I had stands on all those properties. And I thought, uh, if I jump around from one property to the next, I'm just going to be one step behind that buck because yeah. I'm going to be there today, and then two days later, I'm going to get his picture there. And I never get his picture anywhere two days in a row. So I thought my best bet for this buck, do something I never do. I'm just going to camp out. I had one property where i had three tree stands it was a small property 
I had three tree stands there for three different wind directions. And I thought, I'm going to camp out on this property until I kill him. Those three stands based on wind. And that's what I did. And I ended up shooting him on the 10th hunt. And he was the first deer that I seen on all 10 hunts. The first nine hunts, I did not see a single deer. Wow. But I kept at it because I knew he's there. He's coming through here. If I start jumping around, he's going to show up here. I just need to stay here until he does show up here. Yep. And I've never done that with another buck. But, uh, you know, his random personality just being everywhere with with no pattern whatsoever, I knew I just better camp in one spot and just wait him out. Yep. And like I say, that's the only buck that I've ever hunted that way. And it ended up paying off. And yeah, that's, that's such a great example. So to put a bow on this done, if, if we were to give you an opportunity to like have a stone tablet that you could etch your three commandments for hunting the super old buck, if you could write down those three most important rules that someone leaving today, if they remember nothing else, they have to remember these three things, Don Higgins commandments for hunting old, old deer. What would those three things be? Number one, every mature buck has a sanctuary. If you want to kill him, you got to find it. If you own property, you can create a sanctuary and bucks will use it. And that includes the older bucks in your area. Every mature buck has a sanctuary. That'd be number one. Number two, play the wind. Every mature buck uses the wind. They use the, the wind to the degree that, or they use their nose to the same degree that we use our eyes. Um, you, you got to play the wind. And uh, number three would be that annual pattern. Um, they've got an annual pattern. So find their sanctuary, play the wind, put together that annual pattern. All right. There we go. So here's here's my last thing for you, Don. Okay. I want to give you a chance to call your shot again. Do you feel confident enough in in Babe or, or any other scenario? It could be with you or or one of your grandkids or someone else. Do you want to call a shot? for us this year and in guarantee or as close as guarantee something happened in this fall? I think, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to get specific down to the day, but I think uh, Babe will be shot out of one or two stands in October. The fruit tree stand or blind that I described earlier, or there's another stand uh, in a pinch point that I can hunt. It, It requires an easterly wind, which we rarely get but he'll be killed on an afternoon hunt in October from either the blind in front of the fruit trees or um, another pinch point stand about 150 yards away from that fruit tree stand. Awesome. Well, I, uh, I would not want to be babe this year because he's, <laughs> he's in trouble. I can tell you that. I, uh, I love it. I, I appreciate you sharing this Don. This is fun. This is the kind of stuff that I geek out about. And, uh, you're one of my favorite people to geek out about it with. You've got a whole wealth of information to share. So thank you for that. Well, I appreciate you having me, Mark. You know, you kind of uh, opened the door to hunting podcast years ago. I think you had the very first hunting podcast. And now I think everybody that's ever shot two bucks <laughs> has got a podcast. That's, that's true. So, uh, you've kind of been a pioneer in the whole industry, at least the podcast industry. It's been wild to see that growth. And I've been fortunate that it's... Uh, that's worked out for me. But uh, speaking of that, Don, I did want to get give you an opportunity to tell folks about the whole slew of different things you've got going on these days. You've got a lot of great resources and content. Can you give people a rundown of, of what they can find and where they can find it? 
Yeah, so I've got the uh, a website. It's a subscription-based website for videos, but there's a lot of free videos on there as well called the whitetailmasteracademy.com. Uh, you can go there and check out the videos, and if you like what you see, you can subscribe. But we do a lot of just everything, Man land management. You know, I, I'm a consultant, so when I go on these consulting visits, I take my video producer along, and uh, we feature different properties. We try to feature one property a month. Um, tree stand videos, my, my actual tree stands, we go there with my videographer and we film some videos there, but just a lot of different types of videos on that. I got the chasing giants podcast. Um, it basically is a little bit different than a lot of the other podcasts. Instead of having guests, um, we have the listeners submit questions and we read those questions and answer them on that podcast. Um, boy, what else? The, the consulting that I mentioned, if you go to HigginsOutdoors.com. Um, you can find just about everything there that, that I've got going. So that, that's probably easier than me sitting here for the next 30 minutes rattling on <laughs> one thing after another. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll, I'll give a quick little plug for your masterclass. I subscribed to that and have been checking it out. And something that's really cool for people that listened today and heard you talking about Babe, um, you've been posting updates all throughout this year as you've tried to put together your plan for babe and try to find him again and get pictures of him and, and figure all these different things out. And I, I've really enjoyed that. Just getting to see these little like three, four five minute updates on, Hey, today I'm doing this, or today I'm going to go out and try to get video of babe or today. I'm, you know, setting this thing up or planting this food plot and, and getting to see that 365 kind of day process leading up to the season um, has been really fun. And I, I think it'll be extra fun when you uh, make your prediction come true here in a, in a matter of weeks. So uh, that's definitely something to take a look at. So you're chasing 200 series on there, I think is what you're calling it. And um, right. I, I got a kick out of that. It's pretty cool. Well, thank you. Uh, we'll see. I'm, you know, I'm not going to chase babe hard at all until after the youth season. I'm going to give my grandsons a first crack at him and hopefully one of them shoots him. But uh, if not, uh, after that youth season ends, uh, I'm going to be hitting it hard. Well, I wish y'all luck in the world, Don. I know it doesn't take luck. I know it takes hard work and a good plan, which I know you've got. But uh, I'll be sending luck your way nonetheless. I appreciate it, Mark. Thank you. And thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. All right. That's our show today. Hope you enjoyed this one. I certainly did. It's got me fired up for this upcoming season. My Wisconsin hunt, as I just mentioned, is wrapping up. So by the time you're listening to this, that hunt's probably done. But Michigan is going to be taking off here in just about a week. And I'm uh, over the moon for that to get started. So if you're out there already hunting, I'm wishing you all the best of luck. I hope you're having fun. I hope you're being safe. I hope you are taking the lessons you've learned over the years in this podcast and applying them to make your hunts more successful and enjoyable. And finally, I hope you will stay wired to hunt. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry. 
with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. 